Welcome to Investigate Joe Rogan, the most important podcast ever created, where I fact check episodes of the Joe Rogan experience. Today I'll be looking at episode 1427 with Melissa Chen. And this was mostly one of those episodes where they just sort of complain about SJWs. And personally, I don't find these episodes to be all that interesting. I think in 2020, we've we've pretty much heard it all, you know. But there were a few things that were worth investigating. For instance, while discussing her uh, translation project slash charity and the War on Terror, she says that the U.S. has spent $8 trillion on the War on Terror. I thought this would be an easy thing to fact check, but it turns out that estimates vary. So most estimates are in the four to six trillion range. And the reason estimates vary is because it's sort of difficult to know how much exactly has been spent for two main reasons. One, because the Department of Defense funds a lot of stuff by designating it as overseas contingency operations, which makes it not subject to budget caps for some reason. So first of all, that's pretty bad that that exists. And then that makes it difficult to know how much exactly has been spent. Another thing that makes it difficult is that there is no exact government definition of counterterrorism. So that makes it hard to say how much exactly has been spent on the war on terror when there's no hard line of what is terrorism. Estimates also differ because it depends on whether or not you include the interest on the debt that has been created by the war on terror, which is a lot because since 2002, the war on terror has added $2.4 trillion to the U.S. debt is more than 10% of the debt. And I think I think more so than the spending, this is actually the really bad part. Because if you think about it, if we had like a huge budget surplus, and we decided that we wanted to use some of it to vaporize the occasional goat herder with a drone, there you could make an argument for that. But we're sort of strapped for cash at the moment. So that makes you start to wonder, you know, what should we really be spending money on? Especially considering how, as she points out, it hasn't been very effective. And defense spending is officially 15% of the latest budget, which is very cool, of course. Then when they get more into talking about Singapore, uh, they mention how Trump brought up how in China they deal with drug dealers, quote, with swift fair trials, and the death penalty. But to be fair, Rogan and Chen left out the part where he later said, I don't know that our country is ready for that. Now, I don't know what exactly that means, (laughs) but I think it's worth bringing up when discussing these comments. And Rogan said that you can get the death penalty for two ounces of weed in Singapore but it's actually 18 ounces of weed that will get you the death penalty. So if you're listening to this and planning on smuggling weed into Singapore, you need to keep that in mind. Travel tips from Investigate Joe Rogan. A little later, while they're still on Singapore, uh, she says that the Bible says humans and dinosaurs were alive at the same time. 
and they don't really get into this, but I think it may have been the most interesting thing that they bring up on the podcast, because it gets into theology, mythology, and cryptids, sort of. And if she's talking about Genesis, that's sort of a question that goes beyond the scope of this podcast. But when most people talk about dinosaurs in the Bible, what they're talking about is the 40th chapter of the book of Job. And in this chapter, there is a long soliloquy made by God to the human Job, where he is talking about um, the futility of Job, an average human, um, arguing with and being mad at God. And he brings up the behemoth and the leviathan as examples of his, Yahweh's, great power. You know, look at what I have created. And the behemoth, quote, eats grass like an ox, its strength is in its loins, and its power in the muscles of its belly. It makes its tail stiff like cedar, the sinews of its thighs are knit together, its bones are tubes of bronze, its limbs like bars of iron. And then the Leviathan mentioned later, it says, Who can strip off its outer garment? Who can penetrate its double coat of mail? Who can open the doors of its face? There is terror all around its teeth. Its back is made of shields in rows. It sneezes flash forth light, and its eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. From its mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap out. Now, people like Ken Ham and certain flavors of Christians like to say that Behemoth and Leviathan are dinosaurs, and that this means dinosaurs were walking around with people, and the author of the book of Job was probably chilling with dinosaurs. But there's two more mainstream, more plausible interpretations of this. One is like the myth camp, where people think that these are referring to two sort of primordial chaos monsters from Babylonian mythology. The Leviathan in particular is referenced elsewhere in the Old Testament as this mythic being. Even earlier in the book of Job, it talks about something that magicians would say that they could conjure up with magic powers. Uh, to quote John Day, who wrote an article about this, Canaanite mythic imagery was the most impressive means in that ancient cultural milieu whereby to display the sovereignty and transcendence of Yahweh. So essentially, um, the reason these myths would be referenced in the Old Testament is so that Yahweh could kind of stunt on like other religions saying like, oh, Leviathan, your guys' myth, that's nothing. That's, that's nothing compared to me, the, the, big, the big deal. And this is a pretty plausible explanation to me, especially when you look at other references to Leviathan. But there is another way of interpreting it, which is that people think they are just using these established mythic names like Leviathan, but are actually referring to real animals namely a hippo and a crocodile. 
um, a hippo for a behemoth, and then a crocodile for a leviathan. And Ken Ham types will point out that a hippo does not make its tail stiff like a cedar, and will then argue that it must be a dinosaur, like a brontosaurus or something. Uh, but some people think that this could actually be a reference to the ends of cedar branches, like the little the little pines at the end, which would kind of look like the dinky little tails that hippos have. And other people actually think that tail should really be better translated as penis, which would sort of clear up the whole debate right there. And then as for Leviathan, pretty much all the descriptions would fit a crocodile, except for crocodiles obviously don't breathe fire in real life. But people people will say that this is really like a poetic hyperbole, because in the soliloquy, the point is that God is making himself seem large and powerful and beyond the reach of a mortal Job. And so he's saying, look at these crazy things I made because I'm God. Previous chapters also use this sort of language. Like it talks about horses swallowing up the ground to mean that they like run really fast. So it's pretty plausible to think that it, it is a crocodile and a hippo and that this sort of poetic language is just being used. So there's like the myth camp, the real animal camp, and there's like the third weirdo camp that's like, yeah, it's dinosaurs. And the most credit I can give to the dinosaur people is something I talked about in the Forrest Galante episode, which is that some people think that the reason all these cultures that had no contact with each other have similar dragon mythology is because it comes from a common source of dinosaur bones. So it's maybe possible that the author of Job had seen dinosaur bones and could be referencing dinosaurs that way, but it's kind of a long shot. Ken Ham is probably wrong. Whatever Singaporean Sunday school teacher told her this is probably wrong. There's probably no dinosaurs, even though like cryptid internet people will say, oh, the oceans are really big, unexplored, they could be out there. Probably not. There's probably no dinosaurs. But anyway, back to Singapore. Uh, they talk about the gum ban in Singapore, and this is true, of course, but it is not actually illegal to chew gum in Singapore. What's illegal is importing it and selling it. So you could start chewing it on the plane, like put a whole pack of gum in your mouth at once, and just keep chewing it when you get off the plane in Singapore, and then you've got plenty for your whole trip. Further travel tips from me. You're welcome. It's around this point in the podcast where Rogan derails the conversation about the guest's area of expertise by ranting about Ben Shapiro uh, for a pretty long time. But eventually they come back around and they start talking about the Harvard versus Students for Fair Admissions case, which is where this group sued Harvard for allegedly intentionally marking down 
uh, Asian applicants in the interview section so that they could uh, decrease their Asian student population. And Harvard actually won this case, which I'm not saying means that they're innocent, but I think it's worth pointing out. What I found interesting is that Chen has no problem saying that the reason there are so many Asians at Ivy League schools is because Asians in general are very smart and they're very disciplined and good at test-taking. You know, the classic, like, Asian stereotype. But she is very offended by the idea that Harvard uh, could be marking down Asian applicants on, quote, positive personality, likability, courage, kindness, and being widely respected, which is what Harvard says the interview portion is supposed to be measuring. So she's still like a big Asian stereotyper. She just only goes for the positive ones, which is better than being a straight-up racist, I guess. But still, it's, it's a bit hypocritical in my opinion. Also on the subject of Ivy League Asians, she said Berkeley is 70 to 80% Asian after they abolished affirmative action. It's actually 40%, which are still a lot of Asians, obviously. Good job, Asians. But that's only half of what she said it was. While still on the topic of Asians, um, she says monocultures suck in general, which... Is kind of a strange comment because she's referring to Singapore, but if Singapore is a monoculture, I don't see why they would need the laws she mentions earlier about how they uh, mandate neighborhoods to be of certain racial demographics. And, I mean, what about Japan and South Korea and other like non-Asian countries like Sweden or like Finland? Do these countries suck in general? I, I think that's just sort of an inane comment. Then getting back to Asian Americans. She said there's a big pro-Trump Asian American voting block. And I cannot make predictions about the 2020 election. I don't think anybody really can. But in 2016... Asian Americans were 65% for Hillary, 29% for Trump, and 6% for miscellaneous third-party candidates. And interestingly, this is the same breakdown as Hispanic Americans, those same percentages, basically. So is this a big Trump voting block, 29%? You could say it's big compared to African Americans, who were only 8% for Trump, but it's small compared to white Americans, who were 58% for Trump. So I don't know. Big is obviously a subjective word, but Asian Americans were mostly for Hillary in 2016. Pretty much the whole rest of the podcast from this point on is just them agreeing with each other about how bad social justice warriors are, and it's not very interesting. Uh, the last the last thing I'll bring up is that Rogan says that the guy who drove a van into a GOP voter registration tent got no news coverage, which is not true. I mean, if you just Google it, you can see that 
pretty much every major news site covered this. While researching this episode, I also looked at the stats for this podcast. And for reasons unbeknownst to me, a disproportionate amount of people in Islington listen to this podcast. So I wanted to give a big shout out to Islington. You guys are really cool. Shout out to all my Islington bros out there.